Hello, my name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford. And welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Lauren Luger, a group leader at HHSI Camellia Farm Research Camp. Thanks for joining us today, Lauren. Hey, thanks, Forrest. Good to talk to you. Yeah, so you actually went to undergrad here at Stanford, where you studied both chemistry and mathematics. Uh, that's a somewhat unusual combination of majors. So what were the influences that drew you to both of those? I don't think it's that unusual to do math and chemistry. Uh, maybe it was. I mean, I guess the year I graduated, 96, I was the only person doing that. So maybe actually I'm the one that's wrong. <laughs> um, you know, those were always my two passions growing up. I loved biology. Didn't really know what it was. I just, you know, loved animals. But I never would have guessed that I would have ended up being, you know, what one might call a biologist. Chemistry and maths, it's what the universe is made of. Okay, so after you got your undergrad, you actually started a PhD in math at Berkeley before deciding after, I don't know, how a year or so? Uh, you know, like about three weeks. About three <laughs> weeks, really? <laughs> well, no, I, I finished a whole year at Berkeley. But after pretty much, you know, maybe a month or two, it was pretty clear to me that the the life choice of professional mathematician was not necessarily going to be the most fun experience. Your uh, interactions with TAs in undergrad didn't make that clear to you? Well, it was mainly spending more and more intimate time with the professors themselves. And a professor in front of a of a class is very different than a professor when you see them in their their natural environment of hiding in a dark office, like scribbling madly on a napkin. It's hard to seem very lonely. I'm absolutely glad that I, I studied math, and I still think that everyone should probably be a math major and then just decide what to do with it. But I didn't want to lead that life. Yeah, so you, you picked up and uh, moved across the country to go to Duke in a, for a chemistry PhD where you worked in uh, Hama Halinga's lab. How did you choose Duke? I chose Duke because my girlfriend said that, that we were going to break up if I didn't follow her to, to North Carolina. And her mom is, a, um, is, is still actually a professor of cell biology at Duke and a good collaborator of mine now in addition to being my mother-in-law. She does sex determination in in mouse and turtle, Blanche Cable. So that was the plan. The plan was to move to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and figure out what to do. And, uh, you know, as with most of my life, it was just essentially a random event that I ended up in Hama's lab. My mother-in-law's boyfriend at the time, you know, mentioned that he knew this crazy guy that I should go try to work for. I knew nothing about proteins or protein engineering or even biochemistry and wasn't particularly interested in it, you know, over anything else. And so, you know, really on a lark, I followed through on this guy's advice and volunteered for Hummo for a while. So I wasn't even getting paid. I was just kind of sitting around. Then I became a lab tech and like spent a lot of time like racking tips and this is the old days. So I was like washing glassware and, and like reordering enzymes. That was when I actually went, went and did the the math PhD was after I had started at Duke. And I was like, oh, I'm going to fulfill my life dream of being a, a mathematician and went out there and quickly got disillusioned. 
and uh, yeah, headed back to North Carolina with my tail between my legs, and so then went back to Hummus Lab. That's when I was a technician. Just one thing led to another, and and somehow I ended up in grad school. I don't even remember, really remember applying. I think they just came by one day and said, okay, you're now in grad school, or Maybe they said, do you want to be in grad school? And I said, okay, fine. Pretty sure I didn't actually fill out an application. Yeah, so, I mean, in the end, you had a pretty tremendously successful career uh, as a graduate student in that lab. And you published several papers which made use of computational algorithms to predict what sequences of amino acids would form proteins capable of binding specific targets. So the computational problem obviously has a lot of different facets. At a very high level, you, you have to write down a, a simulation of all the chemical interactions that you expect to contribute to binding, and obviously how the, how the protein is gonna fold when you change the amino acid sequence, and then you change the sequence and test in the simulation how well you think it's going to bind. But this seems incredibly hard in part, not only just because there are all these interactions that you have to get right, and you might not get them right, but more importantly, that exploring all these amino acid sequences and predicting how much would each will interact would be so computationally explosive um, that you'd never test enough of them to find a good solution. So could you describe kind of in intuitive terms what the trick is that allows you to do this in a reasonable fashion given the computing power you had? You've sort of hit the nail on the head. This is protein design. <laughs> you know, it, it can look really daunting. You just look at a, a series of like 400 letters on a page and you're like, okay, that's that one protein, and then you look at another series of 400 letters, like, okay, that's thrombin, and the other one is, is, you know, some sort of toxin, and, you know, from one vantage point, it can be awfully intimidating, depressing even, to contemplate how big protein sequence space is, and, you know, how little of it we really sample. So, what I think the computational design does best, and this will probably still continue to evolve, and maybe I'll give a different answer in 20 years, but I think what computational design does best today is it rules out the really bad stuff that you should not even think of trying. And so, you know, if you're binding pocket or whole protein sequence or whatever, let's say, you know... 30 amino acid positions that we're going to change in the binding pocket. So instead of 20 to the 30th, which, you know, you start to, you know, make comparisons to the number of, you know, atoms in the universe, sequences, the program can look and say, wow, well, these would be really dumb here. And so even forgetting like a, you know, a detailed model of how it's going to interact, it'll say, oh, this is unfold your protein. So we're just going to wipe all that stuff off. And that starts to get you down into a much more tractable space when, even when you just consider single amino acid positions of what is just not possible without really, really destroying the, the current fold. I mean, of course, it might switch over to a different fold, which that kind of blows my mind a little bit, and we usually don't even think about that. We... <laughs> You know, we like to pretend, okay, it might move a little bit, the backbone, but it's mostly going to stay in the same place. Yeah. You're mostly doing improvisations off of the core that nature has laid, laid down rather than reinventing the wheel entirely. Exactly. And the mathematical algorithms can actually step up, and it's pretty impressive how far they can crush a sequence 
or, you know, any other sort of combinatorial optimization problem, given just, you know, some simple assumptions uh, that are not true, but they're reasonable enough to to use them to take a stab at limiting sequence space. But then, you know, if, if you're can do like a screen or a, a selection on your vastly reduced sequence based library and start to get some feedback, that's when things get really powerful. When you can figure out one or two rounds of combined um, computational design and directed evolution, you can start to figure out like, you know, some parts of your model were were correct and some parts were wrong and you can start to reevaluate things as you go, that's when it becomes really powerful. The good thing about protein design, I find, one, it can seem really scary at the beginning, but in the end, you know, often you only need one. If someone wants a dopamine sensor, we only have to make one. We don't have to understand why that's the best dopamine sensor. We don't have to make a hundred dopamine sensors and learn trends in what makes a good dopamine sensor. We can hand it to the people next door and move on. <laughs> Design science ends up being very different from discovery science. And blind luck is your, your best friend in both disciplines, obviously. But I would say even more so in, in design science where, you know, we just need to get where we're going and then we need to do, you know, try to address biological questions with the, the tools we've made, sometimes accidentally. So you changed course uh, dramatically once again by taking a job at Genelia Farm, a place whose mission is directed towards neuroscience. So what happened that put you on a path towards Genelia and neuroscience? So more random things I did. Postdoc at Stanford again. That was another random event. So I met my wife on an airplane we just sat next to each other, so that was random. And so I followed her to go to North Carolina, and a friend of a friend said, hey, you know, go work with this guy. I was like, okay, whatever. You know, I ended up in my Ph.D. lab. My um, postdoc, I was actually on Caltrain checking on my way down to check out Stanford Research Institute, SRI. Um, which, as you know, is that, like, vaguely menacing research facility. I think it's not actually in San... It's, like, in Menlo Park or something. Yeah, it's in Menlo Park. That does defense-related research. And, honestly, I don't even know why I even went. I mean, that would have been just absolutely miserable. But I was on Caltrain down to SRI, and my cell phone rings. And... I answer, and I'm like, hi, and it's some guy with a thick German accent saying, oh, you know, he's been trying to call Humma for three years, but he never answers the phone, and and uh, he's, you know, really upset, he wants to collaborate, and so what he did is he called the lab, he looked on online and got the number for the lab, and called the lab and said, hey, how can I reach Lauren, and they're like, oh, he's in... California, he's in Stanford, he has a cell phone number. And so he called me, and I'm like, Caltrain, he's like, oh, is there any way we can collaborate? And I was like, oh, well, Stanford's the next stop. I'll just go ahead and get off. <laughs> and so so I got off, and, and he came and, and picked me up at the Caltrain station, and we had a lovely lunch. And then I went over, and I, um, I think I went down to, like, my SRI interview, 
And then, you know, it was the place was even creepier than I thought. So I kind of hurried back up on Caltrain, gave a talk at the Carnegie Institute with uh, Wolf Frommer, who was the guy with the German accent they called, and he offered me a postdoc. And I was like, great. <laughs> so I, I had never heard of him. I had never heard of the Carnegie Institute. I didn't, you know, know anything about plants. I still didn't know anything about plants. It never occurred to me to work there. You know, but my cell phone rang until I ended up there. So what did he say at lunch that convinced you that you should work on plants? Oh, you know, I, I, I talked about protein design. And the reason Wolf kept uh, wanting to uh, talk to Hummer is, you know, our redesign paper had come out. And Wolf, you know, see the transporter guy, like a sugar transporter. And so the easy problems he wanted to attack were making sugar sensors produced in plants, which we did. We absolutely crushed that. But the harder things that he wanted were sensors for things where, again, just like the problem we're facing with the dopamine sensor is where there's no obvious binding protein to use as a sensor. I mean, obviously things bind dopamine, but they're just not soluble proteins that are, you know, I hate this word, but I'm going to make it up anyway, sensorizable. So he wanted computational design. And so... We tried, and we almost made an auction sensor, but we fell like one yard short, I think. But, yeah, so, no, I spent, you know, just like I had my in my PhD, I spent most of the time on my computer. You know, maybe it was like 75, 25 computer versus bench. But, you know, when I was at the bench, I was just making proteins and not, you know, everybody else was doing rabbit options. And then, um, yeah, then ending up at Genelia was another random decision. I'd never heard of. Genelia or really Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And I certainly knew nothing about neuroscience. You know, I knew less about neuroscience coming into Genelia than I knew about plants going into Carnegie, which they bore biochemistry going into Duke, which, you know, in all three cases was, you know, I was shockingly underinformed about those disciplines. But it was my wife's idea. You know, she saw some poster of, you know, the early Genelia propaganda of come be a part of something different, some sort of inspirational hoorah poster. And I bought it. I didn't know anything about neuroscience, but I was like, damn it, we're going to do this thing. So it's the only place I applied to for a job. And I don't know what the backup was. I don't think there really was a backup plan. Wow. And so, you know, I show up at Genelia, and I've read, like, the first chapter uh, of Candel, like, kind of skimmed it. I only had a couple of weeks to really put this application together, and I gave probably the worst interview talk in the history of the world. And even now, you know, I, I haven't gone back to my slides. It's been eight years since I gave that talk, and I still have not reached a point in my life where I could go back and face that again. Because what I pitched is I pitched that it seemed to me from reading chapter one of Candel that that the details were, you know, still need to work out the details, but we knew the big operating principles of the brain. So it seemed to me that the only you know, for the propaganda of Genelia is try hard things. Come do things that will fail that, you know, you couldn't even attempt at other places. And so I was like, okay, well, it seems like we got the parts list. You got the neurons and they form synapses and then, you know, these little electrical currents run down and then they release some neurotransmitters. I was like, okay, we got that. 
let's redesign it. So I pitched the computational and directed design of novel neuro, neural circuits where you would, you would design in synapses by creating new pairs of binding partners across of synaptogenesis markers. I pitched the creation of a new neurotransmitter that we would take glutamate and turn it into like a bumped glutamate, you know, like a methylated glutamate. And then we install the biosynthetic enzymes for these in certain classes of cells. Then we'd have to design transporters, receptors. But we had just the details. We would just take care of all this. And then install that. And so about halfway through my talk, I'm, I'm pitching to people, you know, so what behaviors do you want to design? I don't know much about behavior, so I'm going to need your help in deciding which behaviors to design. And then, you know, I also don't know much about neural circuits. So how do I, you know, where, where, where do I need to design the new synapses and install the new neurotransmitters? And, I don't know the answer to that, Lauren. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, and about this point, I looked up, and, uh, and you know, I'd just been kind of in the zone, just like giving my talk. And uh, I looked up, and Eric Kendall looks like he's just seen a ghost. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, Sidney Brenner looks like he's going to vomit. And, uh, you know, Rod McKinnon just is kind of like checking his phone. Winfrey Dink is just kind of looking at me like I'm some sort of, like, butterfly in an insect collection, and he, he just he just doesn't quite know what to make of me. And Charles Zucker looks like he's having the most fun he's ever had <laughs> in his life. He's just sitting there grinning like a madman. And at that point, I was like, you know, I think I've really just fucked this whole thing up. Wait, you said that, you said that out loud? Pretty much. No, no, what I said out loud is I said... I think I'm going to pass out <laughs> because it, it all happened so fast. You know, like I was in, you know, I was at Stanford and I was living in San Francisco and I was a West Coast guy and, you know, it was the wife's idea to go interview at Janelia. And so when my friends asked, I was like, yeah, no, I'm probably not even going to go if they, if they make me an offer. I was like, I don't know anything about neuroscience and, and D.C. seems kind of stupid, and, you know, I love the West Coast, and so, you know, I was just really brushing it off. I was like, yeah, no, I'm probably not even going to go. And it's only in the middle of my talk when it suddenly becomes crystal clear that this was all a horrible mistake, and that I also realized that this is something that I really, really want. And... <laughs> It's just such a sinking feeling, to, you know, to realize something like that in front of 40 people and while you're delivering a talk and realize that you've just thrown it all away. Okay, <laughs> so but, I was like... But this story has a happy ending, so, so what saved yeah, the day here? Exactly. Somehow I managed to deliver the rest of my talk. I think I was just like muttering and maybe crying a little bit like, delivering my talk, and I remember the last sentence of my talk was, well, but if you don't want me to do that, I'll do something else, too. <laughs> and, so, and then there's the polite, like, stunned applause where, you know, people are just like, 
oh my God, what just happened? Um, and, and the question and answer period was, you know, I think Eric Kendall, I think, just raised his hand and just ranted instead of, like, actually asking a question. And someone, like, someone says, so, um, what makes you think you'll be able to do this? <laughs> and uh, there, there were some more polite questions, and then I sat down, and uh, I remember calling home, and I was like, oh, guys, no, we need to find, we need to find another plan. <laughs> and so for two weeks, I basically just forgot about it. I was like, you know, hey, I threw that thing out, and there's no backup plan. So I was, you know, I was probably looking at, like, industry jobs, or I can't even really imagine what I was doing for those two weeks. And then, you know, my phone rings, and it's Jerry Rubin, and he says, okay, that was the worst talk I've ever heard. We love you. He's like, can you come, but you got to do different stuff. You know, <laughs> it's like, I, I think all I said was, yes, sir, that sounds good. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I, I just basically, you know, basically just said yes, 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 and then just got off the phone as soon as I could. And then, you know, I remember that then there's the recruiting visit where the second visit where they're trying to get you and so, you know what, there's like 10 of us were invited by, it was a huge round, like 15, 18 people even interviewing, and it's just nerve-wracking because we're all interviewing in the same room. And so I humiliated myself not only in front of the people seeking to employ me, but in front of the fellow candidates as well. And so, you know, they're like, they were covering their face during my talk and, and things like that. So we're invited back to the recruiting visit, and everyone's, like, you know, being really coy about whether they're going to come or not. And they're like, oh, I'm waiting to see if I get the Caltech offer. Or, uh, ooh, I'm trying to play Harvard against NYU. And I was there, and they're trying to wine and dine me. And I'm like, yeah, no, no, of course, of course I'm coming. Well, what else am I doing? Of course I'm coming. And, uh, you know, I remember Scott Sternson pulled me aside and he's like, look, I mean, you, you, you know, you want to play like a little hard to get, right? I mean, like try to ask for a little bit more. And I looked at him like he was absolutely insane. You know, I was like, I just about threw away one of the few things in my life I've all ever wanted. And somehow, you know, some mysterious power saved me. And you're telling me to like, play hard to get it. I was like, fuck that. So I basically just walked in and was in like shook Jerry's hand and was like, okay, you know, yes. And so it's like, you know, then they still take you out to dinner and try to convince you. And I was like, no, yes, yes, yes. No, I'm ca yes, it's fine. I'm coming. When I showed up, that was a really fun period because this all went very fast. And so I think something like, you know, only three months or something had transpired since I got the offer and when I show up. And I've spent one of these months biking across Europe just to try to take a break and blow off some steam. So I, I still knew nothing about neuroscience when I showed up. And so, you know, for the first three months, I just thought, I, you know, I got a notebook and I just walked door to door and I was like, so, hi, uh, I'm Lauren. What are important problems that you have, and how can I help? And, you know, everyone was like, oh, okay, that's different. <laughs> uh, 
you know, so people would just say, you know, and a lot of people are like, oh, no, you can't help. No, 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 yeah, you just, no, 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 I don't need anything. And then we started talking. I was like, well, let's just brainstorm. And, you know, you started talking and people are like, oh, those are proteins. I thought proteins were something else, you know. And they're like, oh, you can do that? I was like, sure, I don't know, but yeah, sure. Uh, I thought I could redesign the whole brain, so, you know, anything's possible. Exactly. You know, they didn't know about proteins, and I didn't know about neuroscience, and so, you know, none of us knew what was possible or what we should work on, but, you know, we sort of made a list, and some things were insane. Some things turned out to be really easy. Some things were, you know, moderately difficult, and a lot of stuff we're still working on. You know, that's where a lot of the core ideas came from, was just walking around and shaking people's hands and saying, what do you need? You know, at my trip at NYU yesterday, I did exactly the same thing. I think we have three more fun ideas for things that may not be that hard that I never would have thought of. So it's just so fun to get to do it like that. So the first time I I heard your name, it was in the context of your development of a genetically encoded calcium-sensitive fluorescent protein. And um, from my perspective, as a graduate student, this seemed to me like a hard problem, not that I had worked on it all, but I had certainly read at least five or six different papers, uh, which had developed some new genetically encoded sensor, and all of which failed to work in a meaningful way when they were put into a living animal. So could you describe for us basically what the state of the problem was when you started working on this? Like what was what was wrong with the existing probes and how did you go about fixing it? Genetically encoded calcium indicators or GECIs were, I mean, they, they, they really were horrendous, you know, when we started. And as you remarked, I think when I started, there had already been something like five papers saying this is the first time that we, you know, can reliably detect single action potential with this new indicator. And, you know, so we got all these things and we tried them and we're like, these things are all horrible. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the experience of the entire field, I think. Yeah, and so the first thing we did is we're like, you know, we found that th- there were no, you know, there really weren't any, like, industry guidelines, if you will, for a calcium indicator or, or really any designed tool, maybe for fluorescent protein. By that point, Roger Chen had probably started, but we're still, this is still evolving. You know, he had probably started to establish baseline levels of characterization. You just mean like this is the cross-section and, and this is the spectrum? And exactly, spectrum. exactly. Like, you know, hey, here's the excitation spectrum, here's the emission spectrum. You need to be able to fuse it to something. You need to make sure it doesn't bleach. But even that, no one really enforces these standards except journal editors and your peers, particularly for something like functional indicators like Gecky. I was reading all these different papers, and not only were the indicators different, but the way they characterized them was pretty much completely different in every case. And so it's like, wow, how do you even compare them? But nothing was the same. So the first thing we did is we set up a, a neuronal and acute flight assay and put the six things that were claiming to be the greatest side by side and really started to say, okay, well, you got to compare them with the same 
some things couldn't be the same. Like if they're different colors, you know, you need to obviously change the wavelength. And, and you know, your laser might have less power, et cetera, et cetera. But to the extent we could, we tried to keep things like expression and stimulation parameters the same. So we quickly realized that the, the situation was actually pretty bad. But from purified protein work, we started to realize that there was actually a great deal of headroom. The one that looked the most promising in terms of sensitivity from the early side-by-side comparisons was GCAMP2. So what you mean from in vitro headroom when you just looked at it in purified protein was that when it's not expressed in a cell that you could see that it was binding calcium, was getting much brighter, but that wasn't being reflected when it was put into a living system. Yes and no. Both things. One was that these geckies were taking huge hits once you put them into intact preps. And in terms of, you know, pretty much any tool across the board, whether we're talking a gecky or, I don't know, a drug to cure cancer, it can look great in purified protein or purified molecule, and then it looks okay in cells, and then worse in slice, and then worse in anesthetized in vivo, and then like really freaking bad in like awake behaving in vivo. General rule of thumb is you like you you lose a factor of like two to five <laughs> at each level of going to a more intact prep. And some of those reasons are obvious and some are not obvious. GCAP two was clearly losing almost all its small head of steam when you stuck it inside cells. But at the purified protein level, what I meant by headroom was, you know, we noticed that the molecule was, at a per-molecule level, was just incredibly dim. And so we're like, well, okay, I think I think that's something we can address by, by protein engineering. And we also noticed that, hey, that the affinity for calcium is actually extremely weak. And the, the protein stability is, yeah, it's very low. So we found all these things that just seemed to death by a thousand cuts that really added up qualitatively that did, did not work in an intact prep. You know, being protein people, some things were really pretty obvious. We looked at the sequence and we're like, oh, well, you know, this interminus here is going to promote proteosomal degradation and so really destabilize the protein. So we switched that around. And it's really fun working with these fluorescent sensors because it's really easy to tell where your protein is when you're purifying it. And it's really easy when you're setting up protein crystal trays to know if it's actually your protein or salt. And so we set up, you know, some trays of GCAMP. And if something like five days later, my collaborator Eric Schreider called and he's like, I've got some big green crystals growing here. So he's like, I'm pretty sure this is the protein. So he quickly got a high-resolution structure out of that. And, you know, we looked at the structure, and a couple things just glared right out at us. We're like, oh, my God, yeah, no, the the chromophore is, you know, no wonder it's so unhappy. The GSP barrel was ripped open and exposed to solvent that was quenching the floor for, et cetera, et cetera. Not so much computational design. It's not like we really explored some 
huge computational space, but just good old-fashioned rational design where you look at it and you're like, eh, let's put something bigger here. Or <laughs> patch the hole in the protein. Yeah, exactly. Let's let let's stop up that big hole there. <laughs> you know, just really basic stuff. And pretty much all those things helped a little bit. And it was the combination of all those little bits that added up. It made a, a qualitative increase. The pipeline that we did to get from GCAMP 2 to GCAMP 3, at each point, I mean, obviously the details were different, and it was different different problems we were solving at each level, but certainly the toolkit remained pretty much exactly the same for going from GCAMP 3 to GCAMP 5 and then GCAMP 5 to GCAMP 6. GCAMP 6, one could argue that that was a more different process because we started to address things like kinetic in a neuronal system. So, you know, a lot of that we did by a, a pretty dramatic change in the way we were screening things. And instead of screening in hex cells and purified protein, we went screening directly in neurons. But really, when you get the GCAMP6 mutations at the end of the day and you map them on the structure, it's a lot of the same things, like a little factor of two improvements in K-on or KD or you know, thermodynamic stability or packing up the interface between the two proteins to make the chromophore happy. And really the principles that we've learned from GCAMP and all the iterations of design and solving crystal structures and et cetera, to the extent that we have explored, you know, it's pretty much the same playlist operating in Malta sensor, the glutamate sensor, the RCAMP, RGECO, pretty much all sensors, at least the, the circuit commuted fluorescent protein-based sensor. I think I could now write a cogent five-paragraph review about what it is that one needs to make a good sensor. And, you know, obviously the details are going to be different for if it's a kinase sensor, a protease sensor, a voltage sensor, etc. But, you know, a lot of the rules, if you were, are starting to become pretty clear. Okay, so in closing, we have a couple short answer questions. If you could go back in time and talk to yourself as a graduate student, and I really mean you personally, what advice did you need to hear? You know, I think I, think I would avoid that at all costs. I think I would say nothing because I think by going back in time and giving myself advice, I think I would change the, the system in a Heisenbergian fashion. And, uh, you know, as you've heard, there were enough random occurrences that got me to this point. But I'm pretty fucking happy with with the status quo as it is. So, no, nothing. <laughs> that seems fair. Is there anything in particular that you plan on uh, visiting or doing when you return here to Stanford? Well, I like to hang out in Happening Bay with my friends. So we're going to a Hungarian music concert on Thursday night. No, but other than that, Burma Superstar. That's the only thing I really need to, to get to every single trip to California. All right, excellent. Well, thanks so much for speaking with us today. All right, Forrest. And thank you all for listening. We hope you join us next week when our guest will be Carl Svoda another group leader at Janelia Farm. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Catalina, Ada Yi, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org.